people and welcome to the reporter cast episode for September 2023. This time we're following up on an emerging banking scandal in the UK, in Northern Ireland to be precise, which is beginning to cause ripples in the finance industry as well as the media. The story was written up first by the Times of London reporter James Hurley in August, and it involves claims of fraud by Ulster Bank, part of the NatWest Group, the company formerly known as RBS or the Royal Bank of Scotland. At one point, the biggest bank in the UK and I believe also Europe. Now, there is a lot of background to this story. Firstly, that the alleged fraud happened in the wake of the financial crisis when the bank was desperate for money to cover up its own bad practices and minimize a series of government bailouts. Secondly, a bigger scandal along the lines uh, played out uh, along the same lines played out in England in the same period, which has become known as the GRG scandal, GRG being the global restructuring group of RBS, which was set up to call in corporate loans and use financial, uh, various highly aggressive financial techniques to juice small companies, which often were put out of business. If you are new to this, you have a lot of catching up to do, but in the interest of time, for those even vaguely familiar with the topic, we will cut to the chase. It seems a similar practice has happened in Northern Ireland, which is only now coming to light. And while England-based clients of GRG were provided with at least some form of compensation, nothing has been done for the Irish side. With us today is Steve Middleton, a veteran financial advisor who has spent years trying to help clients of Ulster Bank get justice and compensation for what is allegedly a serious fraud. And I use this word with awareness of the implications because that's the same term used by Ian Tyler, a former senior RBS banker, who is now blowing the whistle on the mechanics of this situation. The bank has denied any wrongdoing, but admitted some of the contracts were poorly drafted. It's also important to mention that sitting in the background of this story is an NGO called Transparency Task Force, who follow financial crime in the UK and abroad, and who connect journalists with whistleblowers, experts, policymakers, and victims of financial crime. The head of this NGO, Andy Agathangelou, has done great work on this story and others, organizing webinars, meetings, and calls, and he deserves to be recognized. He's really passionate about this work, and he's an inspiration. Steve Middleton was introduced to me by Andy. Steve is based in Yorkshire, and uh, thanks for joining us, Steve. Sorry about the long introduction. Uh, good morning, Matthew. Uh, glad to glad you're here. Glad to have you. So the first question: uh, How did you end up in this situation? How did you end up involved in um, in the Ulster Bank um, alleged scandal? What is your role, and uh, what are you doing now relating to it? Um, I've acted as a consultant on financial regulation for the last eight or nine years now. Um, so where there have been claims against banks, and it involves the regulatory rules and how they interact with um, people's rights and consumer rights. Uh, I've advised um, firms, claims firms, lawyers, barristers in those areas. And um, I was asked, there was a, a person visit, um, who had a meeting set up with a serious fraud office about four years ago now, uh, and they were taking evidence down to the SFO in relation to um, something called credit lines that they had on their loans. And because it's an area that I've spent a long time working on and exposing, I was asked to go down and meet with them in the serious fraud office to set out my concerns 
over those areas, uh, which I did. We had a, a, a circa three-hour meeting where I, I set out the fact that effectively there was a, a fraud happening where people were having debts put in their name in relation to these interest rate hedges, and they were not aware about these debts. And these debts often led to the companies themselves becoming insolvent. Since then, um, since then, um, it's moved on to some degree because the Serious Fraud Office never actually did anything with those reports. Um, no investigation that we're aware of took place. And I then reported the matter and my concerns to the FCA uh, towards the end of 2019. And initially I was... I would suggest misled by what the FCA said to me when they said that they looked at these Ulster Bank loans and um, that they were, as far as they were concerned, they were not regulated. And when I challenged that, they then came back and said that they may not have been totally clear about the matter and actually they hadn't looked at those contracts. Um, so, But I was told at the time that they couldn't do anything because there was a re review into what was a, an interest rate hedging product review about similar products over in the UK back in 2013. Uh, where a number of people compensated and um, a barrister, John Swift um, KC, was undertaking a lessons learned re review into that and they said he would deal with the matter. Um, so I subsequently met with John Swift's team and I gave them the evidence that I provided to the FCA and um, gave them all the details about my concerns. I met with the team, I got a full transcript of an hour and a half meeting with them and when the report came out over a year later, it didn't mention anything about Ulster Bank or about these loans. Um, so I, I've then, again, pursued it with the FCA, who today have still done nothing in this matter. Right, so let's just uh, slowly um, go, go over what you said. So first of all, the FCA is the Financial Conduct Authority. Yes. They're supposed to, to supervise behavior in, in financial markets according to regulations. And um, the thing is, there's a nuance, because in the UK, um, Commercial loans, which means loans to commercial entities, to companies, are not regulated. However, banking is regulated. So, um, mm. you know, uh, there's, um, th there's a difference of interpretation here, because obviously you and all the other campaigners feel the FCA should crack down on the banks um, involved in these loans. But the FCA seems to be saying it's not clear that the loans are regulated. However, according to the Times... The FCA said it was examining the case and it hasn't reached its final conclusion yet. This is likely to be due to media pressure increasing recently, right? But still, it seems the FCA seems to be taking another look at it. And um, just to you know to 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 make sure people understand, so the the issue at hand here is um, a bunch of businesses in in Northern Ireland, you know, everyday businesses, family-owned businesses, medium-sized companies, fam pubs, shops, whatever, um, discovered they had um, swaps uh, attached to some loans they took out from uh, from uh, Ulster Bank, and they didn't. And the, the these businesses say they didn't know about the swaps, and um, the swaps mean that. Um, the fixed rates that these businesses were supposed to pay on the loans were made uh, were made uh, ineffective, uh, because they took out swaps on the on the interest rates whilst also having to pay a fixed rate. But the swap meant that they exchanged the the interest rate according to the swap contract. 
and um, swaps are derivatives used to guard against uh, against the risk of of interest rates changing or going up usually so it's very um, counterintuitive that someone would knowingly accept a swap on a fixed rate loan am i am i am i am i being uh, correct broadly yeah, yes, um, fixed rate loans are really what they say. You 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 take a rate. Let's say if you you take a loan for ten years and you fix a rate at say six percent, and and let's say you were back in two thousand and seven time, that would have been a reasonable rate. All that does is tell you that for ten years you will pay six percent on that loan every year. If you decide to exit the loan and interest rates have dropped or moved against you, there'll be some kind of penalty to get out of the loan. But that that is the only or should be the only risk attached to it swaps however are slightly more complex the more of an investment gamble where you and a counterparty effectively choose to go head to head one of your betting rates that will go up one betting rates will go down so one takes the variable rate one takes the fixed rate and um, what that does is bring with it a risk of what what is called margin calls so that is if rates start dropping then the person who's got the fixed rate will be out of the money and they have to then provide some kind of cash or collateral to the bank to cover that risk. So people might have heard the term margin call in relation to the recent pensions LDI issue, where effectively pensions were found to have these derivatives involved in their investments. It's a leverage risk. So in other words, you're effectively borrowing on the risk and, and suddenly they had to suddenly make lots of cash calls and find calls and sell assets. This was the same thing. So uh, the derivative carries this constant margin risk that you'll have to cover if rates move against you. And that should not have anything to do with a fixed rate loan. Yeah, right. that is a... That's the important bit. And so um, we have businesses on the record denying that they ever knew about these swaps. And um, so when when the crisis hit and interest rates were, were put down and... Um, uh, you know, a bunch of money was injected in the economy and banks become, uh, became uh, insolvent and had to be bailed out. This is when the, apparently these swaps were activated by um, by Ulster Bank. And um, margin calls, which is to say basically money was being demanded ahead of time from these businesses. And when the businesses weren't able to pay up, they were put into GIG, which is the... Um, the workout uh, division, the former workout division of the group of IBS. And GIG was meant to restructure companies in order to recover the bank's credit. Is that right? Yeah, the, in terms of the margin calls, it's slightly more complicated than that. What what happened was, in, in Northern Ireland, the documents said that the, the, the customer would enter into a swap as part of the arrangement. Now, the customers didn't understand swaps. These people had never bought swaps before. But they assumed that that it was something to do with how they got this fixed rate. So the term swap was used. It was in the loan document. They believed that was the mechanism of the fixed rate loan, but didn't understand it. But what happened was in the background, the bank were putting lines of credit in against that customer. So rather than actual make cash calls, in other words, when rates drop, rather than going to the customer asking for money, they would extend a credit line and then increase that credit line, which was secured against the customer's security. The and properties. according, okay, this is important. And so, according to you and Ian Tyler, this is the smoking gun because the 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 the, um, the credit lines were hidden from the customer. 
the credit lines were hidden from the customer and they were not made aware of the margin call. So, for instance, the one okay. the case that was in the Times, he started off and his original loan document did say something about facility D, £50,000, but didn't explain what it was. And there was no other explanation. Again, he just thought that was part of his fixed rate loan. Uh, that that was an initial initial debt, and that covered commissions that the bank would take and some potential risk in that deal, and he wasn't made aware of that. Then what happened was he took that out in January 2008. As rates dropped in 2008 to, to, to 2009, that 50,000 liability in the background went up to over £300,000. That was on a £770,000 loan. So... The debt, the, the, the debt attached to the credit risk became 40% as much as the actual loan itself. But he was not made aware of any of those increases. Right. And because he had an open credit line with the bank, the bank just helped itself to yeah. to the money. Which the, means... the physically had to, the physically had to, they have to go through the process of going to the credit team and getting approval. They just don't tell the customer. So they go to okay. the credit team in the customer's name. And ask for an increase in that credit. Um, okay, and all of this, the, just to make a just to make double sure of all of this, is the allegation which the bank is denying. Um, and so, um, so well, this bank, is why bank, the entire the bank actually, yeah. Sorry, matter. The bank actually haven't denied that. The bank have stayed silent on that matter. Right. So the bank is just just generally denying any wrongdoing without without specifying exactly what was going on. Well, the wording of the bank's responses are very interesting because this is a clear fraud because there was no right, there was no contractual basis for that credit requirement. That was a risk the bank should have been absorbing and it illegally passed that on to the customer instead. Now, what that okay, did... That's interesting. That gave the bank a profit. Each time rates went down, they had an extended profit in their accounts and they also had an asset on their balance sheet related to that value. So they were falsely accounting credit risk against the customer rather than themselves, and it was hugely beneficial for them while being massively detrimental for the customer. Right, okay. So, and this is what the Times is saying as well, that uh, that uh, according to Ian Tyler, this shouldn't have happened and the bank should, should not have done this. And yes. um, so just to be clear, this isn't happening anymore. So uh, it went on for what, five, six years, roughly? Uh, we know, we, we know. We know it at least five years because we, 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 we've seen cases that were done in 2007. And and what happened was the majority of these people all got either pushed into insolvency or moved into GRG around the 2011-12 period. So we know they were falsely accounted for at least five years, yes. Okay, all right. So 2007 to 2012, roughly. Yeah. And how many, how many clients were affected that you know about? We... we we can't get an answer from either the FCA or the bank on this. We've got estimates that we think there may be around about a thousand, up to a thousand, maybe in Northern Ireland, um, customers affected by it, and we think maybe twice as much as that in in the Republic. Uh, but that's based largely on the fact that many of these um, loans um, were sold later on to Cerberus uh, at a very, very huge high discount. Mm, I see. So Cerberus is a private equity fund that buys bad debt and, and tries to recover as much of it as possible. Yeah. And it, it buys the debt at a discount. And usually when when when, when a company like this comes in, uh you're and you're at the other end of, of, of the contract, the company will will use uh, 
any any legal means available to it to recover it, including bailiffs and stuff like that. What you have to consider, Mate, is the the all the fixture rate loans that we are aware of went into a an arm of um, Cerberus called Promontoria Iran. Um, so they have these special purpose vehicles that buy up certain tranches of loans. Now the first value of that 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 loan book was over five billion, but it was sold to Cerberus for one billion. It was an eighty percent haircut. Now uh, at the same time as that, there was a similar tranche of fixed rate loans that were at Clydesdale Bank that were sold to Promontorio Enrique that was sold for 79% of first value. So it shows the level of risk they attached to that to that Irish um, arm that was sold to Cerberus. And of course, it leads you to a simple question. Well, why would you sell debt to a third party to recover 20% of the value? Why would you just go back to the customer, give the customer a discount and ask them to buy the debt out themselves and support the business? Right. Well, that's a fair question. And, you know... Um... It, it bears mentioning that these days this is what would happen but back then they were cowboys all the it it's just the way it was the bankers were cowboys back then and that's why they got into trouble that's why they crashed the economy in 2008 and um, you know they were just out there to get themselves rich rather than help the economy but these days I'd like to think anyway and you know having covered banking for a few years I think, you know they're much more civilized, and when when you when your loan runs into trouble, they will offer you some sort of uh, of deal before sell before selling it to to debt recovery firms, um, most of the time anyway. So just just to be clear, this is this is what's happened in the past, and it doesn't mean it's it's not a scandal. Of course, it's a scandal, but just to, just to mention, it's not uh, it's not likely to be happening anymore. And, I, um, I, I, would, yeah. I would have to say on that matter that I, I'm, I'm not sure I would agree. I'm not saying that's happening at present, but if you go back into an ill economic downturn, I think the same, exactly the same thing will happen, and I think it could be worse. You've got to bear in mind it's the same directors running these banks at the moment who are covering up these scandals from 10 years ago. Well, that's, that's your opinion, and you're entitled to it. Uh, so let's... Um... Let's let's go back to the regulator a little bit. So what is ex what exactly do you want from the regulator? What is your view? You're an expert in regulation. What is your view about the about the FCA's standing to 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 fix this situation? What 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 are the rules in place that the FCA would would be able to enforce according to you? The, the, there's two obvious ways of them acting. They can either undertake a Section 166 review or, or instigate one. Now, this is what the original interest rate hedging product review was, where they will agree parameters for compensation and investigating cases with the banks and then a skilled person, a separate entity such as an accountant, accountancy firm or law firm, will go in and act alongside the bank and set up a redress scheme. Now, the other thing they can do is something called a Section 404, but they very rarely do it, which is where they effectively run it themselves. But because of the time period that's gone on, and there are still victims over there currently as we stand, and one of the reasons why I said what I just said there, Matter, there are people at the moment facing, on a weekly basis, repossession threats and recovery threats linked to these actions and these learns stored from 10 years ago. So the, the, the FCA, to my mind, should immediately be setting up a review over in Northern Ireland to properly compensate victims, just the same as all the victims who have this interest rate risk in Great Britain were allowed to go into review and compensated. 
And my initial call would be that when you've got people as they, they are, and I, I spoke to a, a victim yesterday who was trying to injunct the sale of properties that he lost due to this fixed rate loan scandal, uh, even as we speak, the FCA should agree with the bank now to put a moratorium in place to stop any action against people who have been victims of this fraud until it's properly investigated. That should be the starting point. Okay, and uh, banks are under the obligation, just in general terms, to treat customers fairly, according to the FCA. So, yes. um, so that's one one rule that could work in in this situation if if the NCA chose to use it, I suppose. They also have the banks under the um, com uh, complaints procedures rules, which are called DISP in the FCA handbook, dispute resolution. Um, the, the banks all are, 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 have a responsibility that if they become aware of um, a problem or a wrongdoing, they must investigate to see if it's, if it's systemic. And if they found that there's a problem, then they need to compensate customers. That is a standard rule that all of the banks have to uh, uh, comply with. And importantly, that covers loans to companies as well. It covers, it covers any wrongdoing that they're involved in. Okay, that's important because again, the, uh, the uh, you know commercial loans aren't directly regulated, but the behavior of banks is regulated. Uh, the the, so, the, F the FCA yeah. regularly take action against against financial firms under the principles, the eleven principles that, yeah. that every firm has to abide by. And if you go through the fines in the FCA's um, website, you will see that there are regular fines for breaches of the principles and against the banks. So to suggest that they're outside of the regulatory parameter because the loan itself is not regulated is farcical. Right, okay. And um, um, there has been some um, some discussion about the Treasury in, this, in, in the GIG scandal over the years and um, some allegations, not, not just from yourself, but from many... Um, from many campaigners against economic crime and against against the way GIG worked, and you know one of the one of the top campaigners is now a government minister. So um, mm. you know the, uh, there's plenty of uh, plenty of very very well known people around this. So what 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 do you have to say about the treasury? Has the treasury silently sort of accepted that uh, that uh, RBS went went over the top in in this situation? Uh, the treasury were behind much of what went on. The treasury were the controlling, the treasury were the controlling mind of RBS. While most of the worst behaviours happened, um, um, when they took the majority shareholding back in two thousand and eight, um, uh, th things at RBS declined rapidly, and um, th there were there was a remit to destroy businesses and bring money in, and that remit was driven by the treasury. This is what it's what is called the dash for cash, right? That's that's another sort of all-encompassing scandal at RBS, which was covered very well by BuzzFeed News, by the way. So anyone googling BuzzFeed News dash for cash will find good details about this. So whilst under public ownership, RBS Bank again carried out extremely aggressive and often possibly illegal uh, recoveries from um, from you know perfectly legitimate clients. So this you're alleging this has has been done with 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 the encouragement of the treasury. Well, it is. Have you heard of the asset protection scheme, Atta? Uh, yeah. Why, okay. why don't you so say the, what that is? Yeah. So so effectively, what happened was when the government agreed to bail out Lloyd's and RBS, 
they came to an agreement with them that they were going to get rid of a lot of third-party assets off their balance sheets to free up liquidity. And, 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 and therefore, they created at both RBS and Lloyd's what's called a non-core division. Now, if you were in non-core, they wanted rid of your loan. You might have had a 15-year loan left, but if you're in construction, uh, leisure, uh, in development, hotels, those sort of things, they didn't want to keep banking you. Now, they didn't tell you that, uh, but what they did was um, they set up the non-core division and the government set up something called the Asset Protection Scheme where you could put in the non-core loans. You would take a 20% haircut for putting those loans into the Asset Protection Scheme. But then the bank was insured for a second 90% of further losses on that customer. So it be effectively became a stop loss to allow them to bust customers without having dramatic effects on their balance sheets. And it wasn't a dash for cash against 16,000 customers, as often is made out in GRG, there were 3 million accounts put into the non-core division and the asset protection scheme. It wasn't um, 16,000 commercial clients. There was a 342 billion tranche of loans and debts that went into non-core, and it was all run by the same people who ran the GRG schemes. Right. Okay, and um, that well, that amounts really to to um, real economic value being destroyed for the sake of of balance sheets and numbers on a piece of paper. So that's just wrong, um, and I don't think there's much dispute around that. That's been there, there were books written about it, endless media coverage, and and all sorts of journalism done. So that's pretty much settled uh, at this point. Now, can we talk a little bit about? the real life people who, who have been affected by this, some of your clients, if they don't want you to mention their names, you don't have to, but just give us an idea who they are, what they're, uh, you know, what they're about, what, what their businesses are and stuff like that. Um, the, the, the case in the times was a publican who basically just borrowed some money to, 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 to develop a, a restaurant and uh, office and, and a cafe uh, with his brother. And because of um, this fixed rate loan, they, they were put in a difficult position financially and never able to make the development work. So an asset they'd, um, they'd bought for a, a million pound effectively uh, ended up getting sold at auction, I think it was last year, for less than a couple of hundred thousand pound. And potentially the, the, there is a, a right for the bank to try and recover that difference from them. Um, so there, others, many developers over there in Ireland were massively effective. There were... Um, there's known to have been around a thousand suicides in Ireland linked to the banking scandals uh, because there were so many business uh, built development businesses and, and building businesses that were just sent to the wall. Um, so I, I've dealt, I've been dealing with a meet with some people again who've been affected by those same issues where they've lost family members and friends in the businesses uh, through suicides. There are people still at the moment, as I say, fighting to try and preserve assets, the, the last few assets that are left from the companies that were forced into insolvency um, because of uh, being caught with these fixed, with this fixed rate loan fraud. Um, so uh, but both in the North and in the Republic, there are still hundreds of people fighting to to maintain some form of, 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 of solvency and avoid bankruptcy because of what happened to them. Right, and this goes well beyond, I think, uh, um, RBS and, and NatWest and Alsterbank. So this was more of a general trend in Ireland to um, to enforce very harsh recoveries on 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 people in in that period isn't that true? Uh, the, the, a lot of problems in Ireland with the banking. I mean, in all fairness, there was 
substantial overlending over there, certainly in the development side. And you can't attribute every blame or fault to, to the banks. You know, people were borrowing too much at times and, and, and taking on far too big developments and those type of things. So, um, but but the banks themselves have been very aggressive. It's cost the uh, the government an awful lot to bail them out over there, and they're not they're not shall we say shown in very good light in in either Northern Ireland or in the Republic. Right, and this this was a sector wide systemic issue that again is very well documented in in Ireland on on both sides, both in the north and um, and uh, the Republic of Ireland. So again, this yes. is just facts. This is this is not disputed here. Um, Okay. Um, what's the plan? What do you? What? What are you? Uh, what? How many clients do you represent, and what do you want to do? Do you want to go to commercial court? Apart from the media pressure that you, that you're trying to build, what what else are you doing? At this stage, I'm not uh, in effect representing clients. I've been working with a, a whistleblowing charity, supporting okay. some of the people over there, trying to get this exposed. Um, um, so at this stage, what we're trying to do, we obviously would. The whole point in approaching the FCA was that they could open a review on this. That still is the logical way forward. There are obviously people who have been in touch and suggesting group actions and those type of ways forward, but they're not always the right way for the for the, the customers because they can take a long time and, and they're very, very costly. Um, so so the, we're looking to build political pressure to force the regulator to do something. So currently there's talks of a new uh, all-party parliamentary group being set up specifically to deal with this issue. And there's a number of, of, of senior MPs who are interested in supporting this. And there will be a call for a back uh, bench debate and a public inquiry into the matter. Right, okay. Can you name a couple of the MPs that have gone on the record? Ian Paisley went on the record in the Times. William Ragg called for a, 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 a public inquiry into it. John MacDonald uh, has offered support for a backbench debate and called for a public inquiry. Um, um, we've got... Um, Lord Seeker, Lord Prime Seeker, who's going to raise it in the House of Lords. Uh, I believe Baroness Ritchie's raising it with the Treasury at present, Dr Stephen Farry uh, from the Alliance Party, and, and there's some members from Sinn Féin that were, were in discussions with at present. So very much a cross-party yeah, effort. It's, from, it's not from, every from day you see Sinn Féin and the DUP agreeing on something, right? No. And so, okay, so that's very interesting. So this is going to carry on. This is we're just, Probably this is just the beginning of the story. Um, and also, there's a, there was another another aspect of NatWest that was in the news lately. Um, namely, they shut down Nigel Farage's or threatened to shut down Nigel Farage's bank account uh, with Coots. Coots is another unit of of uh, NatWest. Now, I'm not a fan of Nigel Farage, and I take every opportunity to recall that he once said he wouldn't like to live next door to Romanians. And I'm Romanian, and I'm also British, and I live next door to Brits and English people and all kinds of other uh, nationalities from all over the world. And they're happy to know me, and I'm very happy to know them. And I'm not I'm, I'm not in any way holding holding um, uh, my English friends uh, responsible for, for the fame and the fortune of Nigel Farage. But I just wanted to mention Nigel Farage because... Um, he did have a legitimate grievance against the bank. It turned out they used, um, uh, you know, basically uh, censorship against him, and uh, that was because his uh, his political views were, were were disagreeable, which is not is not legal to do. And he um, he used a legal procedure called the subject access request, 
which you can file to the bank and they then they have to disclose internal communications that mention you by name. And um, it seems some of the alleged victims in this Ulster, uh, Ulster Bank um, episode are also using the subject access request. Now, can you can you talk a little bit about that and what it does and how successful it was? Yeah, um, data subject access requests are a very powerful tool if they're used properly. Um, we've been using them for, for years to get information from the bank's credit systems. Uh, now, they, they only work for individuals. So if you're a limited company, it's more difficult. But but if you're a limited company where there are personal guarantees, there is still an argument that you have a right to, to get information if it relates to your person and your personal risk. So effectively, you can, you can send a letter to them or an email and make a request that you get all of the documentation that relates to you as a person. Now, uh, in the cases that we're working on, this is where we've managed to get hold of internal credit documents showing that we've got these credit um, lines in place on these customers. And um, anybody who wants to do this, um, if you go on the Information Commissioner's Office website, they have a template DSAR document. So you can go on there, it's free, you can get a copy of that, just input your, your own personal details and then submit it to the bank or, or, or firm that you're trying to get the information from. But yeah, they're, they're extremely useful. And in fact, we've on many occasions, we've got more crucial information from the DSA requests than we've, than we've seen in court disclosures. That's very interesting. And, um, you know, anyone anyone who has um, um, a, a good document obtained from a subject access request um, and wants to share it with, with media, they should go right ahead. Let, let, let me hasten to add. And um, there was a there was a role for ex uh, NatWest CEO Alison Rose. You you mentioned at one point when we when we spoke. Um, can you say what role she played? Um, she resigned over the Nigel Farage scandal, but what role did she play in um, in in your work, basically? Well, we reported the um, our concerns direct to Alison Rose. Um, that there is something called the Senior Management Certification Regime that came in uh, at the banks a few years ago which is supposed to hold uh, executives to account to ensure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to do and, and, and people's roles are clearly defined. Now, she was the CEO of Ulster Bank, amazingly enough, until um, the end of last year or early part of this year. And uh, because she was also the CEO of the um, NatWest Group, then she had an overall responsibility if she was given the evidence or had knowledge of these wrongdoings to report that matter to the regulator and have it properly investigated. So we wrote to Miss Rose and we provided her with several key documents that made it inconceivable that this was anything other than a fraud that had been perpetrated on these customers in Northern Ireland. And um, initially she'd written back to one of the um, victims and, and, and effectively just dismissed all the bank had, just dismissed the claims. Uh, but but I wrote from Bank Confidential to Miss Rose and, and set out exactly what had happened. Um, the executive response team was put onto this to come back with a response, uh, but they never did. And the person who was actually looking into it when I chased up to find out what was happening actually left the bank around that time. So we've never had a formal response on our allegations, but certainly Miss Rose was made fully aware of them and could not dismiss the fact that she's seen evidence of a fraud. Okay, let's see to the, to which extent it does turn out to be a fraud. But certainly, certainly that's what you're alleging, and and uh, so far the bank has been denying all wrongdoing in general. And, well, uh, just just a point on that, Matty. Sorry to interrupt, but a point on that. The wording is very interesting. They do not deny a fraud; they deny that there's been a criminal fraud. 
Now, that's a very unusual response from a bank. I, I've been dealing with these matters for years, and normally a bank, a bank will deny all wrongdoing or knowledge of wrongdoing or deny a fraud or, or, or something very clear along those lines. In, in this, the response is very carefully worded from the bank. They deny there has been a criminal fraud. That's a different matter. Okay, and uh, well, I suppose we should get into why it's different now so people don't get confused. So over the years, banks got in trouble for mis-selling, which is, again, a kind of moral type of fraud, but not quite criminal, where um, where you induce someone to buy a financial product with making kind of exaggerated promises and not quite explaining exactly the risks. But this stops short of criminal fraud where you falsify numbers figures names and so forth so um this is this is what you're referring to right yeah the the, the they they know in advance that they're going to have they're going to be investigated on this it's unavoidable uh, the evidence is too clear and and the difference being is when you have as you rightly say what they call in soft terms mis-selling which in, in often terms is, is fraudulent activity then what the banks face is a again a kind of soft review, this type of one six six where they're almost reviewing their own files and effectively end up paying back some compensation. The opposite to that is where you have something like the H. Boss Reading scandal, where bankers were sent to jail uh, because they perpetrated clear frauds, and your you had a Greeks compensation scheme now followed by the Fosky panel compensation scheme, where substantial amounts of compensation have been paid because it leads to criminal fraud. So. I believe the bank in advance are teeing themselves up for the fact they know they will have to pay compensation, but they're trying to tee, line this up that this was not intentional or not known or not really criminal. Okay, well, let's see what happens. That's again, that's a matter of your, of opinion for you. And so far, the bank has denied it. But um, it's important that, we, that, that we're clear on the difference between actual criminal fraud and so-called mis-selling, which is a euphemism for, for misleading people. Um, now, why uh, are you accusing the bank of covering up more broadly? Um, is it just because they're they're being evasive in their answers to the media, or what? What makes you think? Because you've you've been repeating this claim in in other newspapers as well that uh, that the bank is covering things up. Well, you can't not cover this up because it's not that difficult to work out. You know, you you can't have credit lines with fixed rate loans. It just it doesn't happen. It's not part of the contract. And that was done so that the salespeople at the time could earn an upfront commission on this. So we, we, we're we not suggesting that Ulster Bank came up with a, a, a scam that they could take to their customers. What we believe is, and what normally happens is you will have some salespeople in the markets area or another area that come up with a way of making extra commissions and extra monies. But clearly that became widespread. Now, the fact that the bank themselves would have to learn about this around 2012 because these customers were approaching the bank and saying, we've had a swap, we want to go into this swap review. And at that point, they were categorically told, you haven't had a swap. So, for instance, one customer... You have documents, press, sorry to interrupt, you have documents saying the bank says they don't have a swap. I can, I can show you on the case that was in the press that the bank manager, who the GRG manager who was dealing with that, with that publican, agreed with the markets team to break a swap in the background without the customer's knowledge. They authorised that. They took £120,000 out of his loan account without his knowledge. They put it into his current account without his knowledge. They then immediately transferred that £120,000 to the NatWest Markets team to pay a break cost on this swap that they say never had. Yeah, 
And when he then questioned all of that, he was told that it related to the fixed rate loan, but it wasn't because the fixed rate loan was still running. And then just two weeks later, the same bank manager, when he asked about going into the review, was told he'd not had a swap. He'd only had a fixed rate loan. Okay, so the the way that sounds is that anything short of, at that point, when the bank, the managers of the bank found out, anything short of putting their hand up and saying, this is a mess, anything yeah. short of that amounts to a cover-up? Yes. Right, okay. And at that point, it would have been known at board level because there would have been calls coming in from all over the place to get into that review, and someone has had to take a decision to say, we're going to exclude these people. But it's worse than that. They didn't just exclude them. They went on an active mission to destroy the businesses that were affected by the fraud. Well, they were they were on an active mission to juice the businesses, and the destruction was, you know, collateral damage. But I understand your point. Um, so what's what's bring us to bring us to the present day? What's what what what's what's on your agenda for now for for the next weeks and months? And what 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 exactly do you hope to achieve besides the the review from the FCA that you're talking about? I think it's, it's got to be the political pressure because uh, the, the, uh, because of the time period, people will try to dismiss this as well. It's happened. It's gone. It's been too long ago. But but that that's not the case. These people should have got compensated back in two thousand and thirteen. So they've had another ten years of of well, you can imagine what they've been going through for the last ten years. Many of them fighting the bank for that whole period. So I, I think I think everything's got to stem from the political pressure here to force a public inquiry because. You know, if this is what happened in Ulster Bank and was covered up in Ulster Bank and would have been known about in the RBS group, just what else has been covered up? There wasn't a second report done into the GRG issue. The FCA ducked out of doing that second and final report about what what were or what instigated all of the issues that happened there. Um, I think there needs to be a further investigation, a proper investigation, into just what happened in GRG as well as what happened in this Ulster Bank scenario. Right, okay. And um, just as a final point, um, RBS, now known as NatWest, has already spent something like 160, 170 million, something like that, maybe 150 million on compensating GRG clients who were abused. And um, if I'm if I'm getting this correctly, none of that went to Ulster Bank clients yet. There would have been some in Ulster Bank who possibly got some compensation, but the compensation was nothing. It was a drop in the ocean. Did not go anywhere near towards covering uh, what people actually lost. Uh, and the reason why was that that review was set up, the GRG review, was set up to only deal with what happened in GRG, whereas a lot of the wrongdoing, things like these credit lines, the other issues, are what that put them into GRG. So a lot of the real wrongdoing was ignored, and they only dealt with the, the actual profit taking in the GRG section itself. Right, okay. And so um sounds like there's going to be plenty of reason for us to keep in touch. And um, with this, we're closing the September episode. We thank Steve for taking his time to talk to us. Uh, we wish him good luck in his work and all the best to his clients and, and the people he's helping. And uh, thank you to the audience for, for listening. We'll be back again next month. Thanks, Mateo.